0: When you get an Irish Independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply. Just a heads up that this episode contains strong language and themes that some listeners may find upsetting previously and I'm not here to hurt you
1: some months in I came to realize that I couldn't hit any any lower point in my life you're in prison you're an addict you're done X y and Z you've damaged relationships all sorts of things any notion of trying to get drug free in prison is is, is almost laughable actually
0: what you did I did yeah I did episode five the aftermath
2: Prison life is full of conflict. John spent 18 months trying to get his fix of drugs and at the same time, trying to get clean. Once he eventually settled down, he was allowed to re-enter education from behind bars. He makes for a very unusual case study. The majority of Irish prisoners have never sat a state exam. In fact, more than half left school before the age of 15. Yet as John neared the end of his sentence he managed to add a master's in social science to his already impressive resume. But like most things in his life, the aftermath of prison wasn't as clear-cut as you might expect. Freedom for John would unlock a world that he no longer recognised. The country is now in recession. Economic activity is contracting and it is the first time that this has happened for 25 years. We
0: are calling it iPhone And financial markets from Asia to Europe are doing their utmost to prevent Monday from turning from dark to black. One of the things that Facebook does is it makes it really easy to just stay in touch with all these people.
2: While John was behind bars, Celtic Tiger Ireland had gone from boom to bust. The iPhone had been released and everybody now had a social media profile. As a convicted prisoner, it was hard to comprehend and this would pose serious challenges for him. How would he cope? And more importantly, would he fall back into old habits? Let's go back to the moment he found out he was going to be released from prison.
1: On the landing, chatting to, a, to a, another inmate, my name is called. I think it's actually maybe for the doctor or for some mm, something else around the prison. And I'm just told, right, no, get your bag. It, it doesn't register. It doesn't register. They came and got me very quick. As it turned out, it was the perfect way to go. I was carted off, still handcuffed, even though I was technically a free man. I was handcuffed all the way to, I think they call it a halfway house in the old days. It it doesn't kick in for you. I I believe I was in the back of the the prison van with a couple of um, prison officers who were quite amused at my face as I saw trees and grass. And an airplane went overhead and obviously my eyes nearly fell out. So, yeah, it's it's very surreal. It's very very surreal. You know, you you've you've prepped for this
2: day in your head. Are there any goodbyes? Are there? You said you you don't get time.
1: You don't get time. Um, They don't encourage it. I want to obviously. Oh, I want to go off and you know there was prison officers in the gym. I want to say goodbye to teachers. I want to say goodbye. You know, you feel like you're leaving town. You know, you really do. It's, It's become your community. I believe I stopped one or two landings and gave a bang on the door, and yeah, um it, it's it's emotional it's it's emotional counterintuitive, as it may sound, first off, there's a little part of you that kind of goes, oh God, I'm leaving my my surroundings, and especially when you're going out into the world, so this thing I'm going out and, um, can you remember exactly how long you served? It was six years, six weeks, maybe.
2: What items did you have for collection from John six years previous that you would have handed over when you were been put in? Items you don't really
1: recognize anymore. You look at the bag that you had, your rings, your your keys, your you know, you don't recognize them. They don't even mean anything to you anymore. Um you you're so used to being to being naked, to being stripped. You go off with this little see-through plastic bag Swung over your shoulder It's an iconic day That's portrayed in so many movies and books And this, this you know It, it's, it, it can symbolise so many things the, the release from prison And indeed it is It's a day that is etched into your brain Into your mind I can remember the drive so well I can remember the smells so well It was, it was snowing that winter It was absolutely beautiful it can be quite a challenging time it was for me and it can be for a lot of guys and that's where a lot of guys mess up in your mind you're free but you're not
2: what happens when you get to the halfway house
1: you think you've arrived in the Coca Cabana you're just it's amazing the doors open and close the windows open and close there's carpet Uh, yeah there's really strange things you haven't seen in years and that you find amazingly entertaining for lots of lots of time. <laughs> so yeah, I I repeatedly opened and closed windows and doors for for, for many hours. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, I was, I was free, I could travel, I could stay for hours on end, be back at a certain time, I believe it was 10pm or something.
2: Adjusting to life outside of prison would take a lot of time for John. One thing that has always struck me from interviews I've done with people who've been through traumatic experiences is that afterwards, all they really want is a sense of normal. They want to see friends, drive around their neighbourhood, go shopping, the simple things that most of us take for granted. And John was no different. But for him, some of these non-events became seismic in his own head. Life away from the routine of prison brought a whole new set of challenges. He walked me through his first visit to a supermarket, something we all do every day, something that we barely give a moment's notice to. For John, it was a different story. I believe I
1: was down in the local Tesco's or Dunns and um, I was in the men's toiletry section for perhaps maybe 30 minutes because I had what they used to call as the, the problem of overchoice. I, I had been living with... Two options, maybe three, in every single department for years. And I'm standing looking at an array of men's products for hair and deodorant, and I could not figure out what to pick. I need somebody just to hand me a bottle and tell me to go my way. I had every color and fragrance and things I didn't even know that you needed in front of me. Um, Sometime into that then, I became very, very paranoid because I realized I'd been way too long in the store. I was probably being watched by many security cameras and by managements, and they'd probably phoned the guards, actually, at that stage, who had linked me up to who I was and were probably waiting for me outside the store. And I became frozen to the spot. And then I got out of the store as quick as I could, without any toiletries. Yeah. A cup, of coffee, a cup of coffee and then a bit of training and then I'm, I'm doing a bit of coaching later so um, yeah I have my birthday next week So, Oh very good mm.
2: What age is that? Go on have a guess
1: I don't like that game I know I know yeah, is, it is, a big, is it a big it's one? Big, 50?
2: It's a big one yeah. yeah I wouldn't put 50 on you now if I, uh, I'm only I wanted to go and see the new life that John had made for himself so myself and the team went to the place that John called home after his release from prison the seaside town of Bray in County Wicklow. It's just a few miles south of Dublin. Famed for its amusement arcades, its stony beach and a well-known cliff walk. For a small town, it's associated with a lot of big names. James Joyce, Katie Taylor, Darrow Vreen and Sinead O'Connor among them. And I think it's fair to say that Bray is a place with one foot in the glory days of the seaside promenade and another in the modern world sort of made sense that this is where John would end up.
1: So I needed to get out of the city. I'd been doing a little spell down the country in a remote part of Wicklow. And Bray was a
2: nice um, kind of medium between the two. How have you found integrating into a community? Obviously, you didn't know anyone in Bray then, but nobody knew you either. Was that a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Good question. Uh, Probably a little of both. I needed to be in a place where, where nobody knew me, where I had a fresh start. But it was daunting at the same time because you're on your own, starting afresh. You're not 20. <laughs> um, and you are constantly walking
2: around with the shadow of something that you're you're, you're trying to to keep from people. Did it make it hard to form relationships and I don't just mean romantic relationships but even just friendships you've come out you've come to a town where you don't really know anybody Oh, for sure
1: yeah for sure I I, I mean even we're standing here beside uh, on the beach not far from the house I was just saying I lived in I I remember one of the first conversations with my landlady and she was chatting to me and she came down I think (laughs) a couple of days into it and she said one morning I was thinking about things your timeline doesn't add up you know, and that that would be quite a common thing, and I'd be conscious of it. I'd have to fill in gaps and change dates, and I even changed my my surname. I I, I dropped the the O for my surname, um, purely because if somebody Google's me, I'm all over I'm all over the place. I never wanted people to to be Googling me or looking into my past, even if it was just for a reference. Um, I didn't want that. That was, and especially for what I'd been in for, people might see. One thing but they see bank robbery.
2: Have you had people who blanked you, who shut you out after discovering, be it what happened with the bicycle accident, the bank robberies, the drugs. Like there's a lot of elements that would be hard for someone to accept so. on its own, but when you put it all together, that's a lot of things to accept. Throughout the last
1: ten years there's been there's been plenty of you know times where uh, th- that has happened. Yeah, you know, you find out who your friends are. I'll put it that way. You move forward in life, be it career-wise, be it your personal life, um, with a degree of of he- hesitancy.
2: I am going to ask the personal question this time, which is romantic relationships. I presume you have had some since your release from prison. At what point? Do you have to tell do you feel an onus that you have to tell people about this and what, what has happened? I, there's not been many. There's not been many.
1: For the most part for the last however many years, I have I've been very focused on, on getting my own shit together and um, before I even look at that. Again, it's a it's a massive shadow, so it's something intuition will either tell you I can tell this person or I can't. You, you can't tell this story to somebody over a, a cup of coffee. If you're going to reveal this much of yourself to somebody. You have to be careful.
2: More than six in 10 criminals released from Irish prisons reoffend within three years. Experts cite the limited employment opportunities available to ex-cons as one of the key reasons for this. But how do you go about writing a CV in the first instance, never mind finding a job? With a lot of padding, I suppose
1: you have to create a new, a new
2: one. First
1: of all, how do I count for a big gap in my CV? Do I lie or do I tell the truth? If I tell the truth, I won't be hearing a reply. And if I lie, I'm liable to be in a lot more trouble. So it's it's tough. I, I, I was lucky that I got a job in pretty much on street sales, um, which required no qualifications or any questions really asked. And did that for maybe 12 months but it's all word of mouth or people you know, because you can't hand the CV. You can't hand the CV. I, I basically fell into cleaning houses, which, which kind of suited me to a degree because I, I, I was able to be on my own and I didn't have to tell people. Again, you're asking about a CV, but there's the other side of it. If you get a job and you're standing even at the sales table chatting to somebody and they say, well, how did you get into this? Eh, what were you doing last year? And you have to start making stuff up. For the most part it took me a long time before I was able to look somebody and say mm, yeah I was in prison okay I hear your hips you Gosh. sit a lot all day
2: all day okay all so day. we'll right. get you
1: over onto the mats here okay just want to see what your natural squat is like okay so what I'm gonna get you to do is stand here with your feet bit shoulder width apart okay
2: parallel okay maybe at a little angle and just gently the gym had been John's safe space problem. while in prison and outside it became part of his identity as he eventually took up a job as a personal trainer and throughout my time with him john would always arrive with a gym bag slung over his shoulder a fistful of healthy snacks and sometimes on a bicycle you told me before that the gym was part of your saving grace in prison so is it a natural thing that you ended up in a gym when you got out if you'd asked me 20 years ago as a,
1: as a trinity graduate would i end up working in a gym it wouldn't have been my first guess. So when I when I when I was in Wheatfield obviously the gym was a it was a no-brainer. That's that's somewhere you can go to actually let 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 off steam, move, release energy rather than sitting on a bed. So it became more and more important to me as the years went, went by inside. Um, as as did my in what I call in-cell training. Um, so it was it was a no-brainer for me when I got out, Kevin. That. Something I knew the power of, something I knew about myself,
2: was somewhere I'd, I'd had. How long did it take you to get to what might be described as a functioning member of society again? The best part of ten years, Kevin. Uh, but again, that's
1: that's my own personal experience. I think I'll always feel like a little bit of a, an outsider. I've had people often say to me, um, well, you were lucky, you, you, you went to prison and you had degrees. I've seen that on, on some, some comments boards. You know, this guy had a, a traumatic accident happened to him, but he had a degree in psychoanalysis, he should have been able to deal with it. He had a degree in this, he should have been able to deal with addiction. Yeah, I can understand why people might think that on one level. Well, if he understands how the head works, and the, it's not that easy, unfortunately. I have been lucky in many respects, but uh, that certainly didn't play into me having a better time.
2: Over the past year, I've spent countless hours on and off tape with John O'Hegarty. I'm not sure that he's ever turned up on time for one of our sessions, and you could say that makes him unreliable. But I actually think it's down to a nervousness. He's a deep thinker, which makes sense given that his studies were in psychology. Long pauses were common, and at times I could almost see the cogs turning in his head. One sentence he said has always resonated with me. We all deal with pain in different ways. We all deal with pain in different ways. Think about that for a second. It's so true. Life tests us all at times, and there's no doubt that John O'Hegarty failed that test after the death of Roger Handy. He knows that now. Unfortunately, the past can't be fixed. But I do feel that John is continuing to learn from it and to recognise the mistakes he made while also questioning, will life ever let him move on? He has served his debt to society, although I'm conscious that many, including the Handy family, it has to be said, may still believe that he got off lightly. Their sentence is a lifetime of grief. Well? Thanks for coming in. Good to meet you, nice to meet you, How are you doing? Hey, again, On that first day I met John, we sat down to see if he was really prepared to engage on our terms. By that, I mean, would he allow us to investigate his story and to pose uncomfortable questions? Our meeting started out as a straightforward interview. The tone, as you'll have heard, was very much presenter and guest. I'm not sure at what point that changed, but listening back now to our final meeting, it's clear that what started as an interview has ended as a conversation. The first day we sat down, I asked you why we were doing this and you said, it's time. Now, I never imagined it would take us this much time (laughs) to get to the end of the story. (laughs) Do you still think that's the answer for why you did this? Simply that it's time. You needed to get it off your chest? Oh absolutely.
1: I was only thinking last night I completed my masters in, in, in inside. And I when I think about how much was, was pumped into that. Yeah, you know, I'm on recollection I reckon about f- between twelve and twelve and thirteen thousand was, was allotted to me to do that. Which I'm very grateful for. Very grateful for. I had to push together but got it. Add to that the, the the basic expense of keeping me incarcerated, which again Figures from the time I think for around eighty or hundred grand, you're suddenly up to hitting on eight hundred grand to keep me in, in in prison for those years. You know, I often kind of wonder, well, where does that money go? How, how did it benefit me? I came out of the prison experience changed, um, with kind of like a, a quiver full of arrows to to you would imagine to to then tackle. Being back in the world, but they were all useless. We've spoken about. I was up against brick wall time and time again. I, I I'm just, I was just thinking on the way in there that one of my first attempts to kind of come to terms with the fact that I'd been in prison. So I, you know, okay, so I finished with the the menial jobs. I went back to Tuis and I said, "I'm okay," you know. I've got these skills. I got said, They said, oh, this is fantastic. We think we can get you down to a community center and help start working with addicts. So they sent my application off and it took so long for the guard of betting to come through. It actually never came through. And the, the people into us who were fantastic, who were trying to work with me to get me down there, all just came to nothing. So I spent eight months waiting for this. That never happened. And that happened on a couple of occasions. So for all of the. The skills, if you want to call them that, or the tool bag I had leaving prison, with the investment in that, um, what good did it do me? Because as many people have pointed out, well, if this guy can't can't make it with what he has, what hope have other people got? I find that a bit of a skewed ways of looking at things sometimes because your education doesn't mean anything in in, in some ways. In other ways, it means everything. And it's the one thing that I, I feel very strongly about, other than, uh, aside from health, uh, you know, within the prison system is, is, education. It's, it's absolutely essential, but it's the right type of education. And very often the skills that the prisoners are getting, they're fantastic for the first time. It's the first time they've ever come into contact with, with education, giving them certain vocational skills. All that, it's great, but you really need to be giving people skills to reintegrate correctly. After all that time and getting ready to be let out. I was sent into a state of, 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 of shock. I was I was so unprepared for the real world as it was. You talk about things like tech, for example. and I'm a caveman. And when it comes to tech, I was out of the loop for, for so many years and things move so fast now. So people that are spending two, three years in prison, when they get out, their skills are so far behind everyone else's. And that's just on a, on a, on a job front.
2: Looking back on John's story, I think about all of the what ifs. What if he wasn't working on the day of the accident? What if he hadn't cycled down Bagot Street the wrong way? What if he had just been 30 seconds slower that day? What if? I wonder if John has been plagued by all those questions down the years. One of your college lecturers said that when they didn't hear much about you after you finished up in Trinity, that they assumed, given the quality of your work there, and you had done one of the most difficult courses uh, on the books at Trinity at the time, that you'd gone on to bigger things. What do you think would have been the path for your life if that accident hadn't happened? Well, at the time, I was I, I, I was working to
1: um, to effectively waste time. I was waiting to 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 go down to, to Vincent's um, complete my my studies, my training. So perhaps, yeah, I would have ended up somewhere in, in, in the therapeutic services somehow.
2: Would you have lived that classical life with the tree bed house in suburbia and 1.2 kids and a wife? Probably not. I certainly wouldn't have ended up um, sitting here, but
1: that's okay. That's mm-hmm. okay. Do you feel sorry for yourself? I'd be a liar to say, I I, I haven't at times. Yeah, you're full of pity when you're sitting in a cell and going, of course you are. As soon as you snap out of that and and, and start picking yourself up and and, um, accepting responsibility um, and ownership, it's when you move on. Um, It's only when, you know, you you reach that point of vulnerability that the change actually set in or as people often call it, the, the rock bottom, you know. I think I'm not going to say you have to get to that point, but um, there was certainly a point at which I was pitiful.
2: I mean, we've sat through this whole story. And do you think there is an inflection point that goes all the way back to the first day we sat down and you told me about the accident, that if you had been delayed by 30 seconds, not even a minute, that the accident wouldn't have happened. And therefore, you would never have got into drugs and addiction and crime. And prison and life after prison which you found very tough or could that have happened anyway
1: no no simply no it's precisely because of the chance nature of, of, of what occurred and the lack of control i had over it, especially in the, the aftermath of it that's what led to me not being able to i don't know what word you want to use process move forward move on I found a way to deal with the pain at the time and that way was was drugs.
2: So it all comes back to that moment. Life is a series of moments and that moment changed every moment Everything. in your life that followed it. Yeah. And what's your takeaway from that then? If people are listening to this, what is John O'Hegarty's life lesson? Yeah, you're, you're asking me a very big
1: question. But there's no doubt, uh, if I want to bring back to real bare basics, that, um, you know, pain begets pain. And trauma begets trauma. You don't wake up some day and just decide you're going to become a chronic heroin user, chronic crack cocaine user, and then become a, a, a bank robbery. That, 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 that happens for a reason. Being in the system for, for how many years and, and, and seeing that story repeat itself again and again albeit in different guises and, and, and whatnot. How we decide to respond to those unforeseen and or traumatic incidents in our lives um, whatever they may be we don't know it at the time but it can, it can send us on, on a path that uh, as you pointed out 20 years later I'm sitting here talking to you about one moment one moment of my life
2: are you happy now aside from the fact that we're getting to the end of this process of me and you sitting in a room for hours on end in life are you happy
1: i am i am um i th- it's, it's no secret the 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 process of this Podcast has been critical. Has been has been instrumental in, in in many ways for me. It's been a transformative experience. It's 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 allowed me to have some sense of legitimacy again. Um, so rather than hiding the whole time, um, that you can bring these things out and, and, and talk about them. If there were things in place that would allow me to and others like me to um, to move on, I'm happy. Yes, as an individual, I'm happier every single day. I'm happy that I can look up at the sky i can I can breathe fresh air and the one thing that anybody's who's been locked up in a cell for any period of extended time will tell you that you don't take you don't take any any single moment for granted. What is the
2: biggest regret of your life
1: the biggest regret of my life is that there is a person no longer with us that I feel should be and my actions somehow were involved in that. That's a regret. It's a tough one to, if, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't regret anything else. I don't regret that I went to prison. Do I regret, I rob ranks? Absolutely. Do I regret that anybody was ever traumatized? Absolutely. Do I regret that Roger's no longer with us more than anything, more than anything? I said to you, at those that low point in prison, you have to find meaning. And um, it's the same for any anybody that hits a, a point in their life where they're challenged massively. We all find our own way through difficult times. And I, I believe that's by pulling meaning out of something. When I look back now, I, I maybe I would have answered that question differently. Ten years ago, I'd say, I regret this, I regret that. As many people inside would say, I only regret getting caught, but that's not my answer. You know, I actually feel it was all part of the process, and um, so no, no regrets other than those, those obvious ones. It's, it's, it's been a journey.
2: Did you know John O'Hegarty all those years ago? Maybe you worked in a bank and were one of his victims. If so, we'd like to hear from you. You can contact us at podcasts, with an S, at independent.ie. I'm Not Here to Hurt You was presented
0: by Kevin Doyle. Series producer is Gareth Mulhall. Executive producer is Mary Carroll. Assistant producer and sound design by John Smith, with additional sound recordings by Gavin Hennessy and Niall McMonagall. And a special thank you to our legal team of Fergus Foodie and Thomas Turner. All episodes are out now across all usual spots and on independent.ie and make sure to like and follow us so you don't miss out on bonus content. If you've been affected by any of the topics in this episode, the Irish Independent has a list of helplines available. You can find them at independent.ie forward slash irish dash news forward slash helplines. Thank you for listening.